Park. By the late 18th century, many Americans had stopped regularly attending church services. Some believed that God did not play an important role in their everyday life. Others believed that God was not concerned with someone's attendance at church, but rather that he would judge them on how they lived their lives on earth. For others, the reasons were far less religious. The Industrial Revolution beginning to make its way from England, factories began to employ more and more working class people. With their focus on making a living, many simply did not have the time to attend church. So how did religion respond? Many faiths began to sponsor and endorse religious revivals to combat declining attendance, with the focus on the human beings' reliance on God. These revivals used camp meetings and enthusiastic preachers to captivate their audience and convince thousands to convert. Preachers like Jedediah Burchard gave sermons calling for people to return to God. My friends, David, who spake these words, was a king. Myriads stood around him, ready to do his will. He cared not for worldly favor or popular applause. Indeed, why should he? For he possessed all that heart could wish. And yet, although surrounded by these earthly blessings, he had lost the joy of his salvation. It was after his great crime, after the prophet Nathan had repeated before him the inimitable parable of the ewe lamb, which pierced him to his very soul. It was then that I say he cried out in the language of the text, Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation, and uphold me with thy free spirit. Then I will teach transgressors thy ways, and sinners shall be converted unto thee. David had lost the free spirit of grace, and so he cried out to God for mercy. David felt right, my friends, for what is a man without spirit? For that matter, what is a minister? A corpse, a spiritless corpse, a lifeless piece of clay. What makes a corpse? The absence of the spirit. And what makes a spiritual corpse but the absence of the Holy Ghost, the free spirit of God? My friends, David, who spake these words, was a king. Myriads stood around him, ready to do his will. He cared not for worldly favor or popular applause. Indeed, why should he? For he possessed all that heart could wish. And yet, although surrounded by these earthly blessings, he had lost the joy of his salvation. It was after his great crime, after the prophet Nathan had repeated before him the inimitable parable of the ewe lamb, which pierced him to his very soul. It was then that I say he cried out in the language of the text, Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation, and uphold me with thy free spirit. Then I will teach transgressors thy ways, and sinners shall be converted unto thee. David had lost the free spirit of grace, and so he cried out to God for mercy. David felt right, my friends, for what is a man without spirit? For that matter, what is a minister? A corpse, a spiritless corpse, a lifeless piece of clay. What makes a corpse? The absence of the spirit. And what makes a spiritual corpse but the absence of the Holy Ghost, the free spirit of God? I am not included within the pale of this glorious anniversary. Your high independence only reveals the immeasurable distance between us.
the blessings in which you this day rejoice are not enjoyed in common. The rich inheritance of justice, liberty, prosperity, and independence bequeathed by your fathers is shared by you, not by me. The sunlight that brought life and healing to you has brought stripes and death to me. This 4th of July is yours, not mine. However, one of the lesser spoken to yet everlasting legacies of the Second Great Awakening came in the form of public school reform, led by a Massachusetts man named Horace Mann, who called for free compulsory education and changed education forever. Horace Mann was born on May 4, 1796, in Franklin, Massachusetts. He grew up in poverty, experiencing a poor education that was sporadic. He did manage to supplement his education himself at the Franklin Town Library. At the age of 20, Horace Mann was admitted to Brown University in Providence, Rhode Island. It was at Brown that Mann developed an interest in education and politics that would guide the rest of his career, specifically free public education. Horace Mann graduated from Brown University in 1819. Post-graduation, he studied law at the Litchfield Law School in Connecticut. He took the bar exam in 1823 and acquired a job in Dedham, Massachusetts as a lawyer. Although he was not a lawyer for very long, by 1827, he won a seat at the State House of Representatives where he served until 1833. Interesting fact, during his time as a state representative, he established the first hospital for the insane at Worcester. This was the first of its kind in the U.S. Fast forward two years, Forrest Mann had already moved to Boston, and from 1835 to 1837, he served in the Massachusetts Senate. It was during this time, and the de decade after, that man made all of his educational benefits to society. In 1837, he established the State Board of Education and accepted the first secretaryship at the board. He then retired in 1848, accepted a presidency position at Antioch College in Yellow Springs, Ohio. There he remained until the last of his days. Horace Mann died August 2nd, 1859. There's a little debate to the importance of Horace Mann's contributions to modern education in America. Um, we heard recently about some of his positions he held, and Mann left a lasting legacy on the American public education system uh, while serving on the Massachusetts State Board of Education, ranging from centralized state control to highly qualified educators. We see a lot of that impact in today's system. Now, if you wish to learn more about this impact um, on today's system, I'd encourage you to look into some other publications. Like uh, Mark Groen has an excellent um, article titled The Whig Party and the Rise of Common Schools, 1837 to 1854, Party and Policy Reexamined. Okay. Um, and Horseman plays a central role in that paper. It's not just on Horseman. Um, 
But today we're going to look at a single pedagogical element of man's legacy called whole language instruction um, or the look-say method. Um, you might have heard it recanned or reworded as um, sight reading, um, whole word uh, instruction is what it was originally kind of referred to. Um, now, Horseman was vehemently opposed to a phonetic approach to teaching children to read. Um, and English is a phonetic language. Now, Mann advocated for the removal of phonetic instruction. He didn't want the alphabet taught. Um, he wanted students to instead be taught about what words look like, uh, to focus on reading them from sight, uh, the idea being that's how they're going to be getting meaning from them, um, and that the sounds themselves don't hold meaning. In essence, um, as Rudolf Flesch put in his 1955 Why Johnny Can't Read, um, we decided to forget that we write with letters and learn to read English as if it was Chinese. Um, and some authors have commented, we are the only nation to have done that. Any other nation that has decided to teach a Mandarin approach to reading, a Chinese approach to reading in a phonetic language has done so following the American school system's example. Now this just crazy idea um, what it was opposed, but ultimately triumphed over the common sense that educators had. Um, and we've just had a horrifying descent into illiteracy ever since. Um, in response to the reading wars, uh, Congress requested a report on reading instruction, and that resulted in the 2000 National Reading Panel's report, um, which was overwhelmingly in favor of the effectiveness of phonetic instruction. Um, whole language, whole word instruction didn't pan out. Um, but we've seen very slow change, unfortunately. Uh, man's belief in whole word instruction has um, had a huge impact on modern times, but we forget that he espoused that when there was little to no research into how children learn to read. Uh, he and his opponents and his, you know, those who supported the phonetic instruction were arguing from philosophical positions based on personal experience and little to no repeatable data. As modern educators, students, and parents, we have to make sure that we're remembering the damage that a lasting legacy can do. Millions of citizens have lived illiterate lives partially due to man's legacy but we have to remember that his legacy also ensured that they had access to education in the first place. So while we should be grateful for the legacy of man and others, we need to make sure that we are holding them accountable. We can't refrain from subjecting their ideas and perspectives to modern reevaluation and criticism. If we go around whitewashing educational reformers, we will inevitably fail to produce better educational reform ourselves. We in this modern era have much greater access to research and opportunities to trial and study educational theories than our predecessors like man did. We need to hold ourselves accountable to a higher standard. Horace Mann, um, Susan B. Anthony, all of our founding educational fathers and mothers, they did what they could with what they had. So let's allow Horace Mann's lasting legacy to be respected and learned from.
And in the words of Bethlehem School District, who was going through massive reform and learning why and how they had been failing to teach their students to read, in the in light of all of that guilt, um, they came to this motto: "When we know better, we do better." Thank you.